Recode Radio presents Recode Media with Peter Kafka, powered by digital media. Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi finds great people to invest in and it backs them for life. Besides great rate loans, they offer career services and events for every member. Find out more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Hey, you are listening to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. We're going to talk about media and technology and what happens when those things collide. Sometimes you get awesome television shows like the one made by Peter Gould. Peter, welcome. Thanks for joining us. You're joining us from Los Angeles. I don't think there's anyone who would listen to this podcast who doesn't know about Breaking Bad, hasn't watched Breaking Bad. Smaller number, probably familiar with Better Call Saul, but let's just briefly explain what that show is and how it came to be. It's a prequel based on a character from an enormously popular show. Is that a fair way to sum it up? That's absolutely fair. So it's it's Bob Odenkirk's character, Saul, who in this in this show is Jimmy McGill. Do I have that right? That's right. It's uh, We started off and we had this character, Saul Goodman, who we loved and were fascinated by. And uh, we decided... To- <laughs> To do, maybe it was crazy, but we decided to do a, a spinoff uh, centered around that character. And in the spinoff, we find out that he wasn't always Saul Goodman. He was, in fact, started off as Jimmy McGill. And Bob is getting to play, and he's playing beautifully, uh, Jimmy McGill in several different parts of his life, all in the same show. Yeah, you go back and forth in time. It's, it's a really great show. We're going to go back and forth in time here because I think by the time this thing comes out, we'll be four episodes in. We're three episodes in right now. Obviously, we're not going to do spoilers. Um, and I want to ask you about how the show started and all that. But, but I want to talk to you about your career as well. Prior to Breaking Bad, you didn't have a tremendously high profile in Hollywood. Do you want to sort of fill in some gaps for us? Absolutely. No, I was a struggling screenwriter. I was a struggling writer. I came out to uh, go to USC film school, and I, I had a great time there. And then I, I taught there for quite a few years. And while I was teaching there, I directed an independent movie, and I wrote, co-wrote some movies, and nothing was really clicking for me. And you made you you, and, you got paid to like a lot of folks in Hollywood. You got paid to make stuff that never got made, right? I oh. did. Well, you know, then well, that's the good part because it took me quite a while to even get to the point where I was being paid to do stuff that didn't get made. And at a certain point, I, I was very fortunate and. Uh, I kind of hit on something that started to really work for me, and I, I wrote a lot of unproduced and a couple of produced pieces for uh, for cable companies like HBO. And in fact, HBO has been—I've uh, been in business with HBO for a long. <laughs> My daughter's 16 now, and let's put it this way: I, for most of her life, I've been working for HBO, and now now for AMC and Sony. So I've been—I was very lucky to get to write a lot of projects that I was very excited about, but usually they didn't get made. And the most fortunate meeting in my career was when uh, I met Vince Gilligan, and he was staffing up for a series on AMC, uh, Breaking Bad, and <laughs> thank God he hired me. I was reading prior to this that, that actually one of the scripts he looked at was something he'd made for HBO that, that again, was not produced. So sort of HBO led directly to this job. That's true. I had a. Uh, I'm still really proud of it. It's one of the best things I've ever written. I have a, uh, a, a kind of twisted procedural about uh, the Internal Revenue Service, and it's uh, it's very accurate, uh, and it's very, but it's also very much about the place of money and class in American society, and it's it's just I, I just love it. I think it's one of the most fun things. And they, HBO hasn't made it, but may, maybe someday somebody will. So the lesson there is is good things come from failures or, or not successful things sometimes. Let me ask an impolitic question. How old were you when you got on to Breaking Bad? 
Uh, when I got into Breaking Bad, I was, well, let's put it this way. I was, I was over 40. Let's over put 40. it that way. So in some ways, you're... I was, cr- the, I was the silverback in the writer's Right. Room. So that's what I'm going to ask you. Hollywood, like, like many other places, but in particular, Hollywood is known for sort of favoring young, young actors, but also young writers, young producers. Um, you got onto your first big show when you were over 40. That strikes me as pretty darn unusual and, and in many ways fortunate for you that, you that you got on at that age. It is striking, and I, you know, I attribute it really to uh, to Vince Gilligan. Uh, he really looks at the writing first and the work that people do, and he has, fortunately for me, a very open mind about things like that. We've tried to continue on with that tradition on, uh, on Better Call Saul. Do you guys make a point of sort of hiring, I don't know, what's, what's the, is, is non-traditional writers the, the best way to describe a, a, a white you know, guy? I don't, you know, it's, it, we're just desperate for people who can kind of... Uh, who are attentive to detail and who are passionate about the project. And, uh, you know, it's not an easy thing to get. And we're very, very lucky with the group that we have. What was your backup plan if that show didn't come at that point in your life? Were you going to keep sort of working at USC and grinding it out? Well, I was, you know, at that point, I was, to me, I was very lucky because, you know, I was able to support a family and have a middle class life writing unproduced movies and tv pilots right you're already in the so, sort of one percent I, I was very point. i was very grateful for that and you know and, and we you know I, we still live in the house that, that we bought from unproduced movies <laughs> so yeah I, I felt really you know it, it's such a privilege to get to write for a living or to get to create anything for a living i wasn't feeling like a failure <laughs> i felt good i felt like wow this is and because it, it had taken me a while to get there i really appreciated it right. so I, I think there's there's <clears throat> something to be said for really feeling that you've you've paid your dues, and also uh, for appreciating the opportunity that people are giving you to actually create something and to write or direct or be a filmmaker, that's kind of a precious thing. And also, the other thing is, I was working with, and I continue to work with, really cool, smart people. You know, it's, it's the people I worked and I still work with at HBO are they're really smart, good, supportive people who are really interested in unusual eccentric projects and to me that's that's uh the top of the business except for you want to get things made right so that was one of the appeals of getting to work on a tv show and i I actually hadn't been that wasn't something that i had aspired to until just a few years before uh, i got onto breaking bad i started realizing you know this it's going to be much more fun to actually make something to actually see the things i'm writing get made and go to the next step and that's the one of the wonderful things about series television is that you don't have enough time, but you know that whatever whatever idea you land on in the room on this one day, uh, you know, several weeks hence, by hook or by crook, is that's going to be on film. And, and part of that, right? As I, I think, if I have my chronology correct, I mean, Breaking Bad was starting sort of after well, it was after The Sopranos, after The Wire, after the notion that you could do really interesting work on serialized TV that was different than things that had been created before. Was that in your mind as you went to Breaking Bad that we can, this is a new medium really in a lot of ways? Absolutely. You know, it, that was, when I, I came through film school and television was the first, I'll be honest, I was a, I was a complete snob about television. I was not, it always seemed like second best. And then I woke up one day and watched <laughs> The Sopranos and, and, and The Wire and it suddenly became apparent to me that the most the work that was the most interesting to me anyway was the work that's being done on television and that there were opportunities creatively on television that didn't exist or at least that I didn't have access to in features i mean there are still wonderful features being made i don't know how they get made they seem to mostly be made because 
a billionaire decides to write a check, which is a wonderful thing, but it's also it's a different relationship if you know that things are being financed as sort of a, an artistic statement or a beau jest. It's a, it's a different relationship if everyone's kind of in it because there's a tremendous upside or there's some upside. And we talked about the sort of the shows that sort of broke open TV for a lot of people, including yourself. That said, you get to, you start working with Breaking Bad, which is, I think, a Sony production, but it's meant for AMC. It's not for HBO. Was there a thought, oh, we're going to be constrained in what we can do here? It's not a premium pay TV show. It's for something called AMC. Yeah, we didn't really, I'll be honest, I didn't, the only thing I knew, and I think when I got hired on Breaking Bad, Mad Men had not even aired. Now, I did know Matt Weiner a little bit from USC, and I was lucky enough to get a DVD of the Mad Men pilot before it aired, and I was, as one would be, I was amazed and knocked on my ass. So I had an idea that something was going on in AMC, but it was a new world to me to work with AMC, uh, simply because... We have commercial breaks, and we have commercial breaks on Breaking Bad, and that's not something that I was used to writing to. I had only done a couple of things that were written to have those uh, commercial breaks or act breaks, as we call them. However, Vince Gilligan had no problem with them at all. He had worked for, I think, seven years on X-Files, and so he was and continues to be a master of, of placing act breaks. And I know not, not everyone has uh, the same philosophy, but I think one of the things that gives... Breaking Bad, and to some extent Better Call Saul, a slightly different rhythm is that we take a lot of care and attention to think about where where those commercial breaks go. And, and we're lucky that AMC doesn't require us to have an awful lot of them because one of the problems, if you have too many act breaks, the show starts having an artificial rhythm. Right, and there's traditionally... <laughs> where a, 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 you're, traditionally you're, writing, you're writing to a mini-climax. Right, and then you sort of have uh, to repeat. You have to, so you you have to reset people generally and sort of restate what happened um, for people who just came in during the commercial. And it's, I think, going to be an increasingly sort of antiquated way to, to look at television when we move to a world where people are watching these things on DVRs or they're watching on Netflix. And I want to talk about all of that in a minute. SoFi is transforming the financial world by offering great rates on things like student loan refinancing, personal loans, and mortgages. The process is pretty simple. They look at their financial potential of their members, and if there's promise, they back them for life. Which means when you borrow with SoFi, you get an awesome set of perks. Career services, member happy hours, nationwide networking events, unemployment protection, even an entrepreneur program. Sounds good. The idea is that SoFi succeeds when their members succeed. That also sounds good. So they'll do all they can to help their members out. Learn more about what they can offer at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Today's episode of Recode Media is also brought to you by FrameBridge. FrameBridge is a Washington, D.C.-based startup that's disrupting the traditional framing market. These guys will frame anything you want, and they'll send you a mailing kit, so you send it to them. You send them your artwork, posters, album covers, whatever. They'll frame it, send it back to you in days, fully ready to hang. If you want to skip the mailing part, you can do that too. You can upload pictures from your phone or your laptop. Super easy. You can even do it from Instagram. Pricing starts at 39 bucks. And the best part, all shipping is free. Even better, they're giving a special offer to our listeners. That's you this month. Just visit framebridge.com, enter offer code RECODE at checkout for 15% off your first FrameBridge order. Thanks, FrameBridge. Back here at Peter Gold. Peter, we were just talking about sort of the structure of television and, and how you guys built Breaking Bad uh, in a slightly different way than traditional TV when it came to commercial breaks. I'm wondering what you think as, as someone who makes TV and consumes TV about the different ways people are now watching these things. I watched, I think, probably the first three seasons of Breaking Bad on Netflix and binging like a lot mm-hmm. of folks did. 
and I, and I frequently now when a new television show comes on, I think that's interesting. I wonder if I'm going to watch it in a year because I'm not going to watch it now, and I'm going to sort of wait and see if there's buzz or if this is a show that continues. Even your show, which I know I like because I watched all of it last season, I didn't get to it until just this week, and I just watched three episodes in a row. Are you thinking about the way that people are consuming it when you're creating it, or do you have to completely divorce yourself from that? To be really honest with you, I think that we were in the right place at the right time. I think if um, Breaking Bad had aired five years earlier, it might not have made it past season one. And I think part of the reason for that is that the way we approached it, and, the, and this is really it's going to, uh, I think, Vince Gilligan's personality and interest, is it's a highly serialized show. By that I mean each episode pushes the story forward just a little bit. Uh, or maybe a lot. And it's more serialized. It's a hyper-serialized show because the very concept of Breaking Bad is that you're following a man who is, uh, who is changing. Uh, and, right, he's and that's descending. something that we've, we've carried forward on to, to Better Call Saul. Having said all that, I think that it's really tough for uh, someone in the audience to follow a highly serialized show if they don't have access to all the episodes or they don't have access to previous episodes. I remember we were in the writer's room and there was there was a much more experienced writer-producer in the room with me in season three. And I said, you know, well, the show's so good. You know, we're, the audience will build, right? And this guy who knows a lot more about uh, television than, than I ever did and still does said, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think that's unrealistic because the barrier to entry is too high. Right, people and it keeps getting in, higher, People right? tune in and they won't know where they are. And then, so I think you even saw that. I mean, I think Breaking Bad with that show, that, that audience built, it was a particular phenomenon. But I think with Mad Men, even though that's, its critical acclaim kept growing, I think that audience diminished year over year. It was harder and harder to get into that show. I would argue, and, and I love Mad Men, I think it's a terrific show, but I would argue that Mad Men is actually not as serialized. The stories, it, to me, Mad Men, and, and I love it, but it's, it's, Mad Men is like a great New Yorker short story. And you can read one, and the end of each episode of Mad Men, you're not leaning forward or wondering what the hell's ha- going to happen next. You feel like you've seen a full statement about what, the world is and what Don Draper is. And this is, this is my perception. Whereas I think Breaking Bad, I think Better Call Saul for, is a little bit more old-fashioned cliffhangers, if that makes right. any sense. So we, uh, we really see the job of each episode is to make you want to watch the next episode. Right. And so again, so as you're thinking about that and thinking that you're asking more and more of the viewer, do you think, well, you know what? We can ask more of the viewer because we know that they're DVRing this. We know they're watching on iTunes. We know they're watching on Netflix. Um, We can try things that require more of them, that require more investment. Or do you think, you know what? We got to go win these guys out each week and we've got to make sure we're Uh, bringing new people. It's both. You know, you've got to you've got to do both. But the great thing now is that we can we can do things that we wouldn't have dreamed of or dared to do early on Breaking Bad. Uh, we can have, you know, for instance, the last season of Breaking Bad, there was a wraparound story where, you know, we started flashing forward to Walt uh, with this M60 machine right. gun. And then you don't find out what that all adds up to until, I guess, eight episodes later. Which is something that I don't think we would have conceived of before we realized how closely the audience was watching the show. And the fact that they, they could potentially go back and and watch. Now, the other thing about it is that it means that we have to be 
as attentive to detail as we possibly can because the people will catch us if we make a mistake and the longer we go and the more complex our universe gets uh, the more likely it is that we're going to make some terrible mistake that we can't change and we're we're very worried about that that did there's going to be caught some on one inconsistency of those in, did you get caught in one of those in breaking bad uh you know the, i don't know if we got caught there were some things there was an inadvertent overlap uh i would say there was uh when there was a piece of paperwork in breaking bad when um skyler was uh filing divorce papers and you saw you glimpsed briefly on the paperwork that her maiden name was lambert and then in the very the penultimate episode of the show uh, for whatever reason, the disappearer who's taken Walt and speared him off to New Hampshire uh, gives him the new identity of Mr. Lambert. And now you can go back and probably find some kind of uh, deep hidden meaning there. But I, to my, at the time, I remember thinking, uh-oh, we, we kind of messed up. And I think part of that is that we just didn't expect that people would be able to freeze frame or that they would bother freeze framing on these divorce documents. Uh, you've got, you know, a, lot of, you've got a lot of obsessive fans. I mean, it's one of the great things. I think it's a great thing about the Internet uh, with this stuff is that if you really want to dive deep into a show, again, like in Breaking Bad really sort of encourages it, you can spend a lot of time going down the rabbit hole and find, you know, there's obviously a lot of interviews with, with folks like yourself, but then there's you know all sorts of great conspiracy theories and, and yeah, people pulling out um, Easter eggs that I guess you guys planted there intentionally. And that's the definition of an Easter egg. Are you thinking about cultivating that same fan base with Better Call Saul, or is that are you taking a different approach there? No, I, I, I think it's the same attention to detail, and a lot of it is just stuff that we find amusing ourselves, and we like we like having this tight little world of Albuquerque in the two thousands. And these, all these different characters pinballing around through through sp- time and space, and it's something fascinating about when you know when you see a company that you've seen before, uh, you see a logo, you see a character, and to realize that all these, hopefully, it's it's one coherent story of one coherent place. Hey, well, while we're talking about details, I was always curious about the Pontiac Aztec that Walt drove in, in Breaking Bad, and and then Cinnabon in in the new series. Each season starts off with. Saul slash Jimmy in basically purgatory slash hell, which happens to be a Cinnabon, I guess, in where? Omaha? That's right, Omaha, Nebraska. So it's clearly a Cinnabon. He says it's a Cinnabon. Did you need to get a sign-off from Cinnabon? And if so, how do you guys explain that you're going to portray working at a Cinnabon as, as the worst possible existence? Well, I, you know, I, I would take slight issue with that. I don't know if it's the worst possible existence to manage a Cinnabon. I think for Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman being anonymous and hiding is really is a kind of purgatory and that would be true whether he was working at a cinnabon or whether he had you know the corner office in omaha's tallest skyscraper the cinnabon you know it's interesting this is an example of us uh we're focused on consistency for better or for worse uh and the cinnabon really started off as as a joke at the end of breaking bad it was actually a scene that i wrote where uh Saul says, you know, best case scenario, six months from now, I'm managing a Cinnabon in right. Omaha. And, you know, we really just, it was just a joke. It was just a line, really. Uh, and then when we got to Better Call Saul, we thought, well, maybe it's literally true. Maybe, and there is something fun about seeing these things materialize, literally. So, I mean, we, so that's a fun inside joke when you bring it to Cinnabon. I mean, I assume someone at some point has to flag Cinnabon and say, by the way, we're going to... Oh, absolutely. And, and, and what's their reaction when you tell them what you're going to do? 
The Cinnabon people have been wonderful to us. We had a good clue that they would respond well uh, right after the first episode where they were mentioned on Breaking Bad aired. The official Cinnabon Twitter started uh, <laughs> tweeting job uh, job openings in Omaha and, and linking to our, our show. And so that told us that maybe there was an opening there at Cinnabon. And th- those folks have just been great to us, uh, both the local, the local folks at the Cinnabon in Albuquerque where we shoot and then the, uh, the national office of Cinnabon, they actually had a, a day of training for Bob at the Cinnabon. And I remember this was actually before the show even started airing. We were, we were just there in pre-production for the, the pilot episode. And we spent the better part of a day at the Cinnabon with Bob and uh, kind of hoping that passersby wouldn't recognize him and figure out what was going on. He's fairly and Bob, looking. He did make Cinnabons that were not sold to the public. <laughs> I, I want to emphasize that. And I looked at Bob, and I thought, uh, Bob Odenkirk, and I thought, you know, gee, he's, Bob doesn't seem to have his usual spring in his step. He's, he, seems, he seems very thoughtful and kind of depressed. And, I, you know, I was talking to him, and then I realized after a little while, the man is in character. <laughs> So he Bob learned how to make a Cinnabon, and he learned in character as Gene, the Cinnabon manager. And that was uh, the Cinnabon folks. They have been really great to so us. So he's all in. Can we talk briefly about the the process of writing the show? I think it might be worthwhile for the folks who listen to this. I think a lot of people have a romantic notion of movies and, and TV now as well as being the, the product of a single brain and a single creator. And it's a very collaborative process. I'm wondering if you can sort of explain how you guys create an episode or a season. There's a lot of different hands touching this thing. Well, it's it's a collaborative process the way we do it. I can imagine that there are other folks who, other writers who might write a, a season single-handedly. That's just not how we work. Uh, it really starts in the writer's room. And Vince and I sit with a really talented bunch of writers. Well, how many writers are on staff? How many folks oh, gee, well, I'll, I'll go around the table and name them. We have... <laughs> We have uh, Jennifer Hutchson and Thomas Schnauz and Jonathan Glatzer and uh, Ann Cherkis and Owen oh, Gordon Smith. And now we've, we've, our writer system just got promoted. So what's that? That's five people plus Vince and me. Uh, and it's, we sit around and it, it starts off and it seems a little bit overpopulated. But as the season goes on, each writer goes off, writers go off to write episodes or produce episodes in Albuquerque or edit. And then suddenly uh, what started off as five or six people around the table can end up just being uh, two or three breaking the last few episodes. And it just it, people come and go uh, depending on their responsibilities on the rest of the but show. But when you say someone writes an episode, though, generally uh, my understanding is that they're not sort of writing it soup to nuts, right? They'll write a portion of it, then it'll get rewritten collectively by you guys or, or, or you or Vince will, will come over and sort of rewrite it. Well, the way we work, what we try to do, we try to spend the bulk of our time actually working out the story. And we spend a lot of time pitching the story and working it out on three-by-five cards that go on a large corkboard. It looks very old-fashioned. Actual very cards. You're, you're, you're not typing and, this stuff up. And the theory is that we will have worked the episode out so well by the time we're finished talking about it that any one of us could go out and write it. And it usually takes a writer, you know, hopefully uh, about 10 days, 10 days to two weeks to write an episode. But the, the idea is that we've all talked everything through in as much detail as we possibly can. And that's the opportunity, really, for all of us, uh, for all the, the writers in the writer's room to make their contribution to each episode. And then at that point, one of the writers occasionally uh, will split an episode if, if we're crunched for time. Sometimes we'll split episodes and have 
have uh, writers work together. But usually, the uh, one solo writer goes off, and that is now that person's episode. And they will write a draft, and Vince and I, or one of us, will go. Th- we'll usually, what we'll do is we'll go through, we'll read it, and then we'll go through the episode. Uh, we'll just sit in my office, probably Vince, me, and the writer, and just go through it scene by scene, and sometimes line by line, and just talk it through and make sure that we're as happy with it as we as we can be. And then that's usually the writer may go off and do a little bit more, and then usually that's the draft that goes off to Albuquerque. And so it's uh, there is rewriting, but what we try to do, we try to do most of our thinking and most of our heavy lifting in the writer's room actually before the script is written. And the reason I wanted you to, to sort of walk us through that is there's sort of a, a business question I have here about the amount of labor involved to produce a show like this. There's an ongoing, is there too much TV question? And any, everyone who makes yeah. TV says, no, there isn't. People who review TV say, there's too much TV for me to catch up on. I had Michael Linton, who runs Sony Entertainment on stage a couple of weeks ago, and he said, the real issue is, is not that there's, there's plenty of time to consume all this stuff. There's a limited pool of talented people who can make this stuff and i'm wondering what your perspective is do you think there are many more people who can make many more shows or do you feel like that that ecosystem is about as full as it can get that's a good question you know there's certainly bottlenecks uh there's a bottleneck in terms of, of finding experienced writers and experienced directors certainly uh one of the things uh just because there are a lot more one hour dramas than there used to be and when they say too much tv i mean it's, you know, are they, what are they really talking about? Is it one-hour drama? Too many sitcoms? What are we talking about? And usually they seem to be talking about one-hour dramas. I have no opinion about that. I mean, for me, I'm just glad that we are able to make something that we believe in and make it with the people we like to work with. But there's, you know, there's absolutely, and I know there's, there's a hot competition, especially uh, for writers. And the approach that we've had has been... Um, we sometimes will bring writers in from who've worked on other shows, but there are actually quite a few people in the writers' room who've been promoted up the ranks from Breaking Bad and now Better Call Saul. Uh, it's, it, Jennifer Hutchson, who's now uh, an executive producer on the show, was Vince's assistant on Breaking Bad. Heather Marion, who will be, uh, if we get a season three, will be a, will be a writer on, on season three, was our writer's assistant on, on so two those seasons. Are, those are people sort of working their way up the ladder traditionally. You hear about people breaking into sitcoms through things like Twitter and Tumblr, and someone wrote a, someone had a funny Twitter account, and they ended up getting a writing job I, on a sitcom. Does that exist in the drama world? I assume it doesn't. I don't see how it could, because it's, I mean, maybe it could for some, it, it all depends on, you know, everybody runs their show differently, and everyone has different needs, wants, and desires. For us, I mean, it's, it's not so much that we're looking for pithy one-liners, necessarily, uh, as we're looking for people who are just great overall writers and filmmakers, uh, because this is, we, we really try to write the show as a, a visual, cinematic show, and that means, that means understanding not just dialogue and character, but also being able to think about how you're telling the story visually. And that's, you know, it's a rare thing. And we're, you know, we're very, very lucky to have the group that we do. Such a great show. I, I have two more questions. One, without jinxing this show, because I want to keep going. When and if this show ends, you, you'll have this amazing pedigree. I know you can't just say this, but you should be able to pick what kind of project you want to work on. Do you imagine that it would be another television show? Do you think you want to do a feature? And do you care if it's something that, that runs on traditional TV? Or would you are you happy going to a Netflix or an Amazon? That's a very good question. I, to me, a series television is the most exciting area of show business right now. 
I won't say I'll never, I have no interest in movies because movies are, that's what I grew up on. That's what, that's what I cared about all through my adolescence. But right now, to me, television is where it's at. So I, I would hope to get to work and continue working in series television. As for how it's, how it's viewed and distributed, you know, it's an open question. I think for us, I have to say for Better Call Saul, I feel like we've got the best of both worlds because we have AMC is our network here in the U.S. and they do such a tremendous job of promoting the show and of making each episode feel like a special experience. And then globally, you know, we, we have uh, Netflix and also actually a couple other streaming services. The day after each episode premieres in the U.S., it goes global. And I think that's kind of a great situation to be in. So you get the best of both worlds. Yeah, that, that's a very unusual situation. There was, I know there's a brief kerfuffle among certain people who work on the internet who thought that was happening in the U.S. as well, and we had to explain to them that, that it wasn't. Um, last question, what's harder to pull off, to do a show like Breaking Bad, where you've got a sense of where things are headed, but you don't know the end point, or to do a show like this where you know exactly what's going to happen at the end? You, he's going to become Saul Goodman, um, he's the Breaking Bad character, and you have X amount of time to get him there, and it's sort of constrained in that way. It's all back-breakingly hard. I, I, will say, I think when we started... Better Call Saul, we thought, oh, this will be way easier. We know who this guy is. We know where he's going. And it's, it's, all, it's all tough. I wish I could say that one was easier than the other. Uh, for me, Breaking Bad was easier because I was on staff. I was there to support, like all of us in the writer's room, to support uh, Vince in making the, the best show that he could possibly make and helping him out any way we could. This show, Vince and I are running it together, so I have a, a lot more responsibility. So this one is much more difficult for me, I'll say that. Well, you were, you are holding up well. It's one of my favorite things to watch, even though I just admitted that I only watched the last three episodes in the last week, but I'll catch up. You guys should listen as well. Peter, thanks for joining me. Get back to work. Oh, thank you very much, Peter. And thank you guys for listening. I hope you like what we're doing. And if you want to get more, that's really easy. You go to iTunes. You can subscribe. That's awesome for us. You can review it. That's also great. Unless it's a negative review, you can say that for Twitter. If you like that, we have even more great free stuff. You can get it at Recode.net or at iTunes. My boss, Kara Swisher, has a show. Lauren Good has a great show called Too Embarrassed to Ask. There's Recode Replay, which has all the awesome interviews we do at our conferences, like the one I was just referencing, with Michael Linton from Sony, Shane Smith from Vice, Gabe Layden from a company called Machine Zone. They're all great. They're all free. All you got to do is go subscribe and leave us a review. Also, thank you to SoFi and FrameBridge, our awesome sponsors. This has been Recode Media. I'll be back next Thursday with Troy Young from Hearst. See you then.